chapter 10 coming up, and then chapter 11, things really begin to pick up the pace as we almost stampede towards the cross. And so we're kind of excited for that as we go through this this gospel account and what all we have to get from it. It's been a powerful study, I believe. And we're going to begin reading in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf Spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Many say this passage is about spiritual warfare or simply just prayer and sometimes fasting, and we'll address that as well. But one thing is very clear within this story. One thing we are to observe is faith. It's a story of faith. It's a story of belief and a story of unbelief. Where our faith resides, that is paramount to our walk with Christ. If our faith is in ourselves, it's not in Him. If our faith is in our family, our friends, our job, our own power, our own volition, our own money, whatever it may be, it's not in Christ. As Christians, as people who are living for the next life, as people who say we follow the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, as, as those of us who call ourselves Christian, our faith rests in Christ alone. And that's the one thing I hope you take away this morning. The one point I hope to drive home today is if you are in Christ, our faith rests in Christ alone. When our faith rests in Him, when we've submitted to Christ's will, when we've denied ourselves, when we've taken up our cross and followed Him, that is when we see mountains move. That's when we see the earth shake. That's when we see the world turned upside down. Too often in life, we try to bulldoze our own way through our own problems, don't we? 
We kind of have this thing in the Midwest, this grit about us, where we want to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We would like to knock down every wall on our own. We think, hey, I can do this. I don't need anybody else's help. And sometimes that's, that's true. Sometimes we make it. Sometimes we break down ourselves and we need a helping hand. But it's in those moments of trial, those moments of turmoil, those moments of testing, where we really begin to find out where our faith resides. What is the object of our faith? What is the source of our faith? It's all revealed. And we have to ask ourselves, is it in myself or is it in Christ? Where's your faith? That is your God. Where's your faith? That is your idol. I've heard Christians say, my family will get me through this. So is your family then your idol? I mean, it's great that you can rely on your family. Don't get me wrong. I've I've had a friend of mine tell me that my spouse is all I live for. So you've made an idol of marriage then. If your wife were to leave you, does that mean you'd die? I've heard pastors say, I, I love the ministry. This is, this is what I have. This is all that I'm throwing myself into. So you, you don't love your family then? Or, or what's really, what are you doing? There's many pastors who love the work of ministry more than they even find they love Jesus. It's a sad fact, but it's true. As followers of Christ, our faith must rest in Him and in Him alone. We have a lot of text to get through this morning, and, and like I said, I've already read that, but we're just going to break it down as we go. We're going to dive into it. Beginning in verse 14, it says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Now, if you remember from last week's message, Jesus, Peter, James, and John have been up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and now they've come down and... Matthew expands on this in noticeable ways, and Luke tells the shortest version of this story. But Mark tells us, and Matthew and Luke, all three tell us, this event, this story, happens directly following the events on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, what we are are to understand from that is, as God is up on the mountain with Jesus, and he's revealing the unifying presence of, of the Messiah to the disciples, as God is working on the mountaintop, Satan is at work in the valley. The devil is busy doing other things. And what does the devil do? He sows chaos, confusion, terror, deceit. If nothing else, by the time Jesus gets to this crowd, the devil's fingerprints are on everything. Jesus, James, John, Peter, they they come down, those remaining nine disciples, what are they doing? They're arguing with scribes because, of course, they are, right? The scribes had to show up. If you recall, Jesus has tried to get away from them. It wasn't that long ago, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they'd asked Jesus for a sign, and he rebuked them for it. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. He'd gone over to the other side of the sea, to Bethsaida. And he'd healed a blind man. He'd been confessed by Peter to be the Messiah, to be the Christ. And a week later, he'd gone up that mountain. Transfiguration took place. Moses and Elijah stood beside him. Now he's back down that mountain. Who's waiting? The scribes. And with the scribes comes 
chaos, comes debate, comes a fight. Now it's interesting because neither Matthew nor Luke bother to mention the scribes are there at all. Only Mark does. And that's even more interesting because Mark's not going to mention them again in the rest of this story. In the rest of this passage, it's almost like they were there, they were causing the problem, and then they were gone. The minute Jesus shows up, their role is made moot. Maybe Mark is making the case that those who cause division, those who only want to cause problems and sow seeds of dissension and things like that, they're a side effect of the presence of the enemy, or they're opportunistic in their attacks. They come against the disciples of Jesus when Jesus seems distant. Or at the first glimmer of failure, they're there to stir the pot. We have to be careful when it comes to texts like this. I said this when we looked at the Gerasene demoniac. When we look at texts that involve the supernatural and things, we have to be very careful where our focus goes, lest we fall victim to the scribes even today or to the demons even today, because they love nothing more than to take our gaze off of Jesus. We have to look at what he is doing and what he is saying and what's taking place. What does this tell us about him? So we read on in verses 15 and 16. Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And when he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Well, we're going to pause right there. Mark is the only one of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's the only one who points out the crowd as amazed. And that's curious. Why would they be amazed? Well, it's possible that, and some people have argued this in the past, that Jesus, as he'd been up on the mountain and transfigured, just like Moses, and if you remember, there were parallels between Jesus and Moses going up on this mountaintop. When Moses came down Mount Sinai, the people were afraid of him. They saw a change in his appearance. But that's not what's happened here. If you remember on the way down the mountain, Jesus told his disciples, don't tell anybody what you just saw. Wouldn't it be hypocritical of Jesus to say, hey, don't tell anybody what happened on the mountain. By the way, my clothes look awesome, don't they? And my face is is still changed. Don't don't bother to explain any of this. No, everything's back to to normal. Not what's going on. Jesus is not contradicting himself. As Mark is the only one who mentions the scribes and now they are silent, it's likely the crowd is amazed because the only one who can silence the scribes is on the scene. And the crowd recognizes, they recognize the scribes are spooked. One with authority has come into the crowd. We're not told exactly, but the disciples are clearly relieved that Jesus has shown up. They've been trying to hold their own with the scribes. They've been trying to do their work in the ministry. And Jesus' first question to them. Have you ever read this story before and and just tried to dissect all of this? There's there's so much going on. Jesus' first question to them, it's not... Why is everybody here? He already knows that. His his question isn't, what have you been doing while I was up the mountain? He already knows the answer to that question. And he already knows the answer to the question he's about to ask, but it's very specific to the disciples. He says, what are you arguing about with them? 
Why does Jesus lead with this? Now, if I'm coming down the mountain, if I'm Peter, for example, and, and I see what's going on, I'm thinking, what has happened? What started all of this? That would be my question. Jesus wants to know, why were you arguing with them? It wasn't that long ago, he had told his disciples back in, in Mark 8.15, Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians, right? And who are the scribes but associates of the Herodians, associates of the Pharisees? So here they are arguing with them when Jesus had chose to have nothing to do with them. What they're doing is they're entertaining them. They're entertaining their arguments. They're dignifying, they're dividing poison with a rebuttal. Their arguing has only escalated the situation. It's given the scribes more mic time, more ammunition, more things to use against Jesus. It only served the purpose for the scribes. More chaos has been unleashed in an already chaotic situation. The right response would have been not to argue at all, to ignore them. The right response may have been, this is what Jesus said, and that settles it. You know the phrase, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, God said it, that settles it. Doesn't matter if you believe it or not, that's what God said. That could have been their response. No. And this is what gives us a glimpse. This is, this is letting us see the problem with the disciples. This is where things have gotten off track with them. Their pride. It wasn't that long ago they themselves were out teaching and casting out demons and healing people. And now they think because they've had some wins, they think they can hold their own with the scribes. Meanwhile, the scribes likely use their education to beat up, criticize, humiliate, and even mock these nine men. And now in their own efforts, they've embarrassed themselves. They've disappointed the crowd. And on top of all of that, they failed to follow through on a miracle. But before they get a chance to answer Jesus back, before they get to explain themselves, someone from the crowd steps forward. Verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now let's look at this, this man for a second. He comes forward, he calls Jesus teacher. Not, not rabboni, not rabbi. It's the Greek word didaskale. And it means one who instructs. A teacher. Luke also uses the exact same word. He calls him teacher. Matthew. In Matthew's writing, he expands just a little bit further. He says, the man came forward and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into water. For the demon's actions, Mark adds that a little bit later. We'll get to it. The father continues to speak to Jesus. Luke leaves that out of the story entirely. But it's worth noting that of the two, of the two gospels, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark and, and Luke, they call him teacher. Matthew has him called Jesus Lord. He calls him Lord and he calls him teacher. And Matthew also notes, he's the only one who does this, the man comes to Jesus and falls on his knees. Very humble. 
He has knowledge of who Jesus is. This is not just some guy. He's Lord. He's teacher. He's not coming to Jesus in a way, he's not really saying, like, we use the word Karen in our culture, right? He's not, I'm going to speak to the manager. I brought my son to this guy to get fixed, and his employees couldn't do anything, so I'm going to tell him what's up. No, that's not what's really going on here. This man isn't speaking to Jesus with smugness. He's come to Jesus as someone who needs help. He's on his knees hoping Jesus can do something because he understands Jesus is the only one who can do something. And before we move on, I want to look real quick here. There's another slide. If you go ahead and put it up. Um, We're just going to look for a moment and observe what this spirit does to this boy. Notice this. It makes him mute. It throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. Now, previously, when we saw demon possession in the Gerasene demoniac, what did he do? Almost the exact opposite of all of these things. Night and day, he cried out. He broke chains and shackles and pieces. He lived among the tombs like a wild man. He cut himself. He mutilated himself. He didn't want to kill himself, but he wanted to scar his body. That was a legion of demons, though. This is just one manipulating a young man. Now, some modern readers will pick this up and they'll say, well, clearly, this young man suffered from grand mal seizures. No, that's not what's happening here. They would be wrong. Seizures don't purposefully try to throw people into fire or water to drown them. Seizures are often random. They're not opportunistic. They're not looking for a chance to hurt someone. Luke, obviously, being a physician himself, would have heard these symptoms and known this is not this is not something physical this is something spiritual now some people would say but satan can't do that satan can't harm our kids yes he can demons can hebrews 2:14 indicates the devil even has the power of death that's why paul later when he writes to the colossians says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him in other words Jesus put the devil to shame by showing he does not have absolute power over death. People say, well, the devil can do anything to you but kill you. That was Job, not Greg from Lisbon. Anybody know anyone named Greg from this town? I didn't mean that about anybody specific, okay? Just using a generic name. Don't forget, one of the reasons that Mark is writing this gospel is to prove the fact that Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan, to destroy his kingdom. And one of the workings of Satan is pain, suffering, even death. Jesus hears all of this about this boy. He's no doubt moved to compassion for him. But first he's going to address not just his disciples, but the whole crowd. Verse uh, 19, it reads, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now Jesus is not just frustrated with his disciples. It's with all the unbelief of Israel. The lack of faith in all of Israel. We might compare Jesus' words to that of Psalm 95.10. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart 
and they have not known my ways. And that, of course, is referring to the people in the desert, the people who rebelled against Moses. In fact, there's still this parallel Mark is kind of making with Moses on Mount Sinai. We saw Jesus take three disciples with him. Moses took Joshua, his disciple, and they see God move in power, and they both come down to chaos in many ways. There's a similarity there, except Moses, when he descends, he finds the people worshiping a calf. Jesus, when he comes down, people are just in absolute terror or chaos by this demon. The point is very clear. Our lack of faith seems to frustrate Christ, especially when it's in those who have seen his power, who've experienced his power, who've been instruments of his power, when they begin to doubt him, that's where he gets irritated, it seems. Like the cartoon of the, the kid with the camera watching the bag of trash just blow in the wind. He's, oh, that's just beautiful. And meanwhile, God's saying, do you have any idea how awesome your circulatory system is? Right? They just get so focused on one little thing. We, we lose perspective. The disciples have seen Jesus feed 5,000, probably closer to 20,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish. And they've seen him calm storms. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him bring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, the lame walk. Wasn't that long ago, they were doing miracles themselves. In Mark 6, 13, they were casting out many demons and anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Or earlier than that in chapter 3, when he designated them apostles so that he might, uh, they might be sent out from him to preach and teach and to have authority to cast out demons. And yet here they are. For over two years, the disciples have been walking with Jesus, not in blind faith, but faith that's supported with more and more and more and more evidence. And now, none of that happened. Jesus went up. He got distant. He went up the mountain. Didn't even ascend into heaven. That's later, right? And they're forced to operate in faith when Jesus is nowhere in sight. You know, they've been living by sight, and now they're forced to live the same way we are forced to live, by faith. Hebrews 11.6 reminds us, without faith, it's impossible to please him. That's why Paul writes to the Galatians. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, if these men were to be the apostles that Jesus wanted them to be as trained them to be, they could not live like they've been living at the base of this mountain. They could not preach to the rest of the world after Christ ascended to heaven, the way he ascended that mountain and live in the way they've been living the last couple of days. Like Jesus told Thomas eventually, blessed are those who did not see and have believed. But we move on and we see this boy is brought to Jesus in verse 20. They brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. You notice something here? The demon doesn't speak. You know how rare that is in these types of occurrences? Not the same sort of thing that possessed the, the Gerasene demoniac. Immediately it throws the boy into convulsions, causing him to fall to the ground, to roll around, to foam at the mouth. Luke tells us that the boy screams, but not the demon. 
And both and Mark are silent in this moment. Remember, in earlier times when Jesus encountered demons, they couldn't wait to scream at him. They couldn't wait to shriek his name or his heavenly titles, like the Capernaum synagogue demoniac. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus would always rebuke him and say, be quiet. He doesn't have to do that with this demon. Demon's silent doesn't speak its only desire is to cause pain suffering torment it's not uncommon by the way for demons to throw people around or people they possess try to cause them harm it is uncommon for demons to remain silent clearly jesus is dealing with something different than what he has up until this point and he's going to make that point before the ordeal is over verse 21 says And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. In other words, this is not something new. This was not a condition. I mean, Jesus knows the answer to this question, by the way. But it's for our benefit, he asks it. This isn't a condition brought on by recent trauma. This isn't some sort of manipulation technique this kid picked up on the playground at school. This boy is likely, by the way, in his teenage years, probably 13, 15 years old. Jesus asked him, he says, uh, it's been since childhood, so this boy's at least 13. I want you for a moment, just think about this. Imagine being the parents of this child. Imagine being this dad. By the way, where is the mom? Did she run off when she couldn't handle this? Did she abandon her baby? Did she die in childbirth or or later? Has his father been left to raise this child alone? Imagine all that this has cost this family. The doctors, the priests, the materials, the medications they've had to buy, only for it to do nothing while the boy continues to rage, flop on the floor, convulsing, trying to harm himself. To say nothing of the sleepless nights they've had where they've had to watch over him to make sure he doesn't stick his, his head into the fireplace or run to the well and throw himself down it. If they've been able to maintain any kind of home with this in their environment, it's surprising. Arkant Hughes writes in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, it says, this child was a perfect example of Satan's motivation, which is to destroy the image of God in mankind. As we see also in the pathetic condition of the Gerasene demoniac who is even compelled to engage in self-mutilation, Satan is at war with the image of God, the Imago Dei. Imago Dei is Latin, by the way, if you don't know this. It is Latin for the image of God. It's in the kids' notes. That's why I meant to mention that. Anything the devil can do to destroy this in man is for him and his twisted thinking a triumph over God. What we are seeing in this boy is a sick revelation to the, of the depths to which Satan will go in order to attack his enemy, to attack Yahweh God. If Satan cannot have the father, he will go after the mother. We see that in the garden, don't we? When he goes to Eve. That's why one reason you guys have heard me say this countless times over the last few years, women demand better theology from your Bible studies. Don't accept this, I'm enough 
psychobabble nonsense that they, this fluffy trash they put out. Don't take that. Get into the Word of God and learn it and stand on it. We need women who will pray for their husbands and pray for their children and biblically teach them. And husbands who will stand up and be the men of God God has called them to be. But if he can take neither parent, the devil will go after the children. And this is why we disciple our kids. This is why I'm, I'm excited for this fall. We are, we're doing the Bible project. Uh, Mindy's doing the Bible project with the kids and getting them into the Word. And Wednesday night, we taught them apologetics this past spring. How to defend your faith. It's vital that our children know how to read the Word of God, how to understand the Word of God, so they can live, defend, and share, and preach, and teach themselves the Word of God. Amen? It's no wonder when when Cain gets angry at his brother, God warns him. God steps in. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see, the devil already deceived his parents, and now he's going after the kids. And this demon has tormented this boy for years, since he was a child. Verses 22 and 23 read, And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. It has often cast him into fire and into water. Church, please hear me on this. I read recently, and somebody not from our church, some, another pastor had posted something to the effect of, on Facebook, the same Holy Spirit that will make you jump, make you shout, make you dance, will throw you down and shut you up. That is not the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you really want to talk about dancing in the Spirit, that's unbiblical. And we can argue about that later if you like, but the Bible says when David danced before the Lord, he did it, the Hebrew word is oz. It means he danced under his own strength under his own might. He did that as worship. David danced before the Lord with all his might. That's 2 Samuel 6.14. People like to say that. They like to say David danced in the Spirit. No, he did not. David danced as a form of worship under his own volition. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may prompt you to do something, may urge you to do something, but he's not going to force you to do something. I know he prompted me to not leave the comment that I originally wanted to leave for that post. But the Holy Spirit does not force you to be mute except in one case. And husbands, pay attention because it only applies to you. Okay? The only time in Scripture that the Holy Spirit will make you mute is if your wife is advanced in age, and I'll let you decide what that means, and she's pregnant with John the Baptist. Okay? Only time that's going to happen. All right? Someone says, well, the Holy Spirit made me shut up. No, he prompted you to be quiet, and you listened. Good for you. There have been instances, and if you study church history, you'll find these pretty quick. In the 1300s, 1400s, there were people who were claimed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and they would throw themselves into bonfires, and they would throw themselves down wells, and they would blame that on the Holy Spirit. That is not the Holy Spirit. Evil men and demonic spirits do that to people, not the Holy Spirit. If you think the Holy Spirit is telling you to cause harm to yourself 
or others. That may be a spirit, but it is not the Holy Spirit. Not ever. Seek help. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So the man knows that this is a demon. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Some translations say have pity on us and help us. To which Jesus replies, if you can. I don't think he says this really as a rebuke, just as a, hmm, if I can, huh? Okay. He's not being hard on this man. Because if you remember, this man has just sat here and had to suffer while his son was suffering. And if you're a parent and you've ever had your kids so sick and you feel powerless to do anything, you know exactly how this man felt. Jesus had to watch as nine disciples tried to cast this demon out and were powerless to do so. This man had to sit and listen to the scribes mock his disciples and run his name through the ground, through the dirt. No wonder he has doubt. No wonder his faith is wavering. The disciples' failure wasn't because they didn't try. It's because their lack of faith. So this man's faith has been diminished because of their lack of faith. Possible, we're not told this, but it's quite possible the disciples had healed other people before this man got there. Possible they'd cast out other demons. But then this guy comes along and they fall short. Now it's likely this man knows the power of Jesus. That's why he's there. He knows, and in this era, for a disciple to do something would be the same as if the teacher they followed was doing it. They should know how to do what what their teacher does. And so this man comes up and knowing what they're capable of, they don't do it. Well, maybe this Maybe this spirit's just too hard. It's been in him for years. Maybe it's dug in like an Alabama tick and it's not getting out. So the man says, if. But Jesus turns it around. You understand, it's not an issue of Jesus' power. It's not an issue of God's power. It's an issue of belief. It's an issue of faith. Jesus has healed people who did not even know who he was had no idea who he was, much less had faith in him. But when the time came, they listened to him. We see this multiple times in Scripture. We see it in the man at the pool of Bethesda. He did not know who Jesus was. He just wanted to be healed. Jesus healed him. In John 9, everybody remembers this story. Disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents? The man never asks for healing. But Jesus spits in the dirt, makes clay, rubs it on his eyes. Remember that story? That's another one of those weird healings, right? So we remember it. The man does what Jesus tells him to do, and he comes back healed. And when they go to ask him about it, who healed him and everything, was he a sinner? Was he not a sinner? What did he look like? I don't know. I was blind when I talked to him. Well, well, was he a sinner? What, what, what's the deal? He says, whether he was a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And isn't that the cry of everyone who's in Christ? When Jesus goes to his hometown in Mark 6, he could do no mighty work there, Mark tells us, Mark 6, 5, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's not that Jesus was powerless. It's that the people didn't come to him for healing. Their lack of faith was they didn't go to Jesus first. They didn't want to go to him. And he marveled because of their unbelief. 
Us having no faith does not change God. But it will rob you, it will rob us of what God offers us. The attitude of, well, God won't heal me, so I'm not going to waste my time praying. Well, why should he heal you with that attitude? It doesn't hurt to ask anyway. Not to say it's always God's will to heal. That's some silliness that's crept its way into the church. It's wormed its way in. People will take the line from the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven, and, and they'll try to say, well, there's no sickness in heaven, so there can't be sickness on earth. Conveniently, they leave out the story of Paul with a thorn in his side, and he prayed three times for healing, and God says, my grace is sufficient. Or the fact that Jesus had to pass by the lame man at the gate called Beautiful numerous times before ultimately John and Peter heal him. I could go on about that, but I won't. True faith says, God, I know you can. And even if you don't, still I'll serve you. I'm going to worship you anyway. And where I struggle in my belief, help my unbelief. That's what faith really does. That's what this man does. He says to Jesus, in a sense, I, I have weak faith. Help me in my lack of faith. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He's admitting his faith is not perfect here. But he did have faith, or he wouldn't be there to begin with. He brought his son to Jesus, hoping for a healing, expecting a healing. Man had to have been desperate to have come to Jesus. He had some faith. He knew this was the right direction to go for relief. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's talking about salvation. But if the Father is drawing you, if the Holy Spirit is urging you, you still have to be obedient. You still have to go. God is sovereign, but man's responsible for the choices he makes. Now, this dad, in a sense, the Lord is demanding more faith for him. From him, sorry. The Lord's demanding more faith from him. So he says, help my unbelief. See, the disciples could not help him. The scribes could not help him. And if he's to have hope, if, he's to have, if his son is to have any chance, he rests with all the faith he can muster in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 25 says, And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The wording here in other translations makes it very clear the crowd was growing. This is more than the crowd from verses 15, 17. This is more and more people keep coming. They're here for the show, right? They want to see this miracle man do his miracle. So now they come running. Maybe he's going to heal this kid. Maybe he's going to start juggling monkeys. We don't know. They're here for the circus act. Maybe not the monkey thing. Maybe that's too far. But they are here for the show. Situation's still kind of touchy. So Jesus, if you remember, he's become more and more private with his miracles. And Jesus never does miracles just to appease the crowd. That ends up being Herod's great disappointment. Herod will want to see him perform a sign even though he questions Jesus, Jesus won't even say anything to him. Regardless, Jesus has had enough, and he looks at the boy, and he rebukes the demon. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, 
I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Now, I want you to notice two things here this morning. First, Jesus does not have to have this demon's name. He doesn't address this demon by name. He addresses it by its function. You're a spirit that causes deafness and muteness. Jesus doesn't need the demon's name. He knows what it is, and he knows that it's somewhere it's not welcomed. Too many times, people want to try and get too familiar with the demon. They want to understand too much more about the enemy than they ought to, rather than just cut the enemy out altogether. You do not need to know a demon's name to know it doesn't belong in your life. Same way you don't need to try meth to know it's bad for you. The idea that we have to know something's true name, by the way, that's a pagan belief that's also crept into Christianity. If there is a demon, then you stand in the authority of Christ if you are in Christ and you rebuke it in His name because His name is the only thing with power. His name is the only thing that matters. It's not our authority, but His that matters. It's not our words demons fear, but His words they tremble at. It's not our image they twist, but His not our wrath that will end their reign, but His. Not our name or their name that matters, but His. The name of Christ is the only name demons have reason to fear. His name represents His authority. Not your name, not your pastor's name, not Peter or Paul. Otherwise, the response could very well be, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Didn't work out for the seven sons of Sceva. Won't work out for you either. So are you in Christ? Are you under his name? Are you in his name? Second, he strictly instructs this demon to never again enter the boy. Excuse me one moment. He instructs the demon to never again enter the boy. Now, if you've read Luke, you understand when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, this does not mean, I've heard someone preach this recently. It does not mean that because your body is 70% water, and the demon is forced to go through dry and arid places. Well, demons like water. That's why they want to possess you. That is absolute nuts. That's silliness. That is, I believe the term is bovine scatology. The point of the matter is that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the presence of God, walking in the Spirit, if Jesus Christ is in your heart, they can't come back. Someone else is living there. Otherwise, they'll come back worse than before. Mark's the only one who mentions these two things in this passage, by the way. Both Matthew and Luke, they just say that Jesus heals the boy, he casts the demon out, and he gave the son back to the father. Mark goes into greater detail. Why? Because Mark wants to make it so clear to us that Jesus is destroying the works of the enemy. It's one of his purposes for writing. Jesus' kingdom is greater than the kingdom of Satan. Satan's minions don't deserve to have their names mentioned. They have to flee in the light of Christ when his presence is near. So this 
This demon is banished and it has to obey, but it's not going to go without a fight, right? Verses 26 and 27, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The demon cries out, it convulses, it has its last little chance and it's gone. The relief that boy felt was so overwhelming after years of physical, emotional, mental, and no doubt spiritual turmoil, this child is at peace. And he's so peaceful, the peace is so great, the crowd thinks he might be dead. But Jesus takes him by the hand, much in the same way he took the hand of Jairus' daughter as he tenderly raised up Peter's mother-in-law, and the boy's restored. We see similar results in the Gerasene demoniac. They came to Jesus, observed the demon-possessed man sitting down clothed and in his right right mind. The very man who'd had the legion. By the time the crowd can examine this young man, he's healed. He's on his feet. He's at peace. He's no doubt in the arms of his father. I can tell you as a dad, if that were one of my kids, I can't tell you how much. You're not getting my kid back. I'm going to hug this child all the way home over crowd begins to break up they probably go home jesus ducks into a house for a moment of quiet possibly to grab something to eat he's been up on a mountain for a few days he's had to come back down and deal with this probably worked up an appetite verse 28 says and when he'd entered the house his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out now this is this is fascinating because in mark the greek gets really choppy It would literally read, and when he was entered into a house, and most translators believe it's his own home, when he was entered into a house, his disciples asked him apart because of what we were not able to cast it out. That's a little hard to read in English. Matthew, Matthew's Greek is eloquent. Matthew's Greek is perfect and perfectly translates over to English. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? In the Greek, Matthew nails it. The disciples asked that question like students ask. What did we do wrong? What mistake did we make? When we read Mark's Greek, it's more along the lines of because of what were we not able to cast it out? And Matthew's is why couldn't we pass it out, cast it out? There's a subtle hint at something here. You ever take a chemistry class and everybody in the room is is making the fizzy thing in the beaker. They've added all the right stuff, and, and theirs just all looks perfect. But you're sitting over with your lab partner, and you dump too much of one thing in, and <laughs> what's the first thing you ask the teacher? What did I do wrong? What did I, do, what, what I, what I mix up, right? I'm the only one who, nobody's nodding. I'm the only one who took t- chemistry in high school and botched it. Okay, probably why I'm a pastor and not a scientist, but we'll move on. Mark's wording seems to indicate they're really asking what kept us from doing what we were supposed to do. In other words, was that demon too strong? Was that father's faith too weak? Again, what we are seeing here is the disciples really not wanting to accept responsibility. It's like there's an external force working against them. Jesus has already pointed out they have a lack of faith. But then he addresses now privately with his disciples a lack of something else. He says, he said to them, 
This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. There we have it. There's the answer. Some manuscripts, you'll note in your footnotes, it says some manuscripts add and fasting. It's one of the few times I think that the modern translators probably get that right, especially when you look back at Mark 2.20, uh, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in that day. Jesus isn't going to rebuke them for not fasting if he's already told them it's okay if they don't. It's not to say that fasting is a bad practice. Likely what had happened is in the early church, fasting and prayer went hand in hand. And so someone added that into a manuscript at one point, and a handful of them got and fasting added to it. But Jesus, is, you know, in Matthew 6, he addresses fasting, giving, prayer, all those things. Fasting is a good thing. Don't misunderstand me, but there's a correlation here. Jesus is making the point that this demon, this particular type of demon, and we've kind of established whatever it was, it was pretty rare compared to all the demons Jesus has faced before, probably thousands of demons Jesus has faced before. Prayer is the key to a life of faith. A life of faith is built on prayer and on the word of God. Prayer is how we speak to him. His word is how he speaks to us. These things all go hand in hand. And in Jesus' reply in Matthew, he emphasizes this. He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Faith, true Christian faith, surrenders our will to Christ's will, to the will of God. As Christ submitted to the Father's will, so we must submit to His. What he's saying here is nothing like some positive speech, life-giving, life-affirmation coach would tell you or some best life now preacher would say, this is not new age, confess it and make it happen nonsense or blab it and grab it gobbledygook. It is definitely not positive thinking psychology. Jesus is saying that the source and the object of all genuine faith, even weak, mustard seed-sized faith, must be in him and him alone. Luke one thirty seven says, Nothing is impossible with God. 1 John 5.14, And this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. When our faith is in Christ and Christ alone, when we've submitted our will to his will, when we've denied ourselves, when we've taken up our cross, daily followed him, that's when we see the mountains move. That's when we see demons scatter. That's when we see healings. That's when we see the town change, the community around us impacted. We see revival. That's when we turn the world upside down. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and and lead us in a song as we close this morning. But as you worship today, maybe, maybe you're here and your faith's been shaken or and maybe you want to get an earth-shaking faith back. Maybe you've had the kind of faith and you're saying, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Maybe you've lost sight of the cross and the salvation that's offered to you. Maybe you feel like you're backsliding. Christ died for your sin. He rose on the third day. If you feel like you've backslidden or you've fallen away or you're slipping, Lord, help me in my unbelief is one of the most powerful prayers you can utter. And this is a place of prayer. There is no better time than now to pray, to get alone with God, to begin to build or even rebuild a relationship with Him. Now, we're going to sing a song and I'll close this. I'll dismiss this in prayer. If you will, stand with us as we sing.
The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. I want to know. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. The greatest thing in all my life is loving you. The greatest thing. Sir. 